0: Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, everybody. Amen. The applause is for Jesus, amen. amen? The applause is always for Jesus. I, you know, I've had people call me a lot of nice titles and some, some, some things not so nice, but a lot of nice titles over, over the years and, and uh, the only title I've ever wanted to have is to be God's delivery boy from God's bakery giving living bread to dying men around the world. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I'm just really glad God's still using available mud. Amen? <laughs> uh, Jesus spit on the dirt one time, anointed it, made anointed mud out of it, wiped it on blind eyes, and they were open. And uh, I'm glad he still uses available mud today, and I'm glad to be available mud. I don't know about you, but uh, I like running around with him and being available. Praise the Lord. What a delight it is to be here with you today. And, and as Pastor said, we've just met, but yet we have some dear, dear, dear mutual friends. Uh, Mike and Beth Webb out in California, which uh, have recommended us to them and them to us. And so uh, here we are. Right. So if, if if y'all don't like us, just get mad at Mike and Beth. <laughs> <coughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen. But anyway, we're glad to be here. We Renee and I uh, say this all the time, that we think the best idea God ever had after sending Jesus and the plan of salvation uh, was the local church. We, we believe in church. We believe in the, lo- the local church. We believe in the office of pastor. And uh, I'm glad you're here today. And I'll tell you what, uh, the, <laughs> we're in a crazy time in America nowadays that uh, uh, the scripture says in, in Zechariah 13:7, it says if you smite the shepherd, you'll scatter the sheep. If you smite the shepherd, you scatter the sheep. Hell knows that. That's
1: right.
0: Hell knows that. And hell also knows if you smite the church, right. there's no hope for the sheep. And so hell is on an all-out attack against the church of Jesus Christ. Now take it from an old missionary who's been it's my fifty-third year in third world missionary evangelism around the world. I started when I was eighteen. I went when I was eighteen. I went to the jungles of Panama and lived with an Indian tribe that didn't wear clothes, and uh, we lived wildcat style. No catch, no eat. If I shot a monkey, we ate monkey. If I shot a parrot, we ate parrot. If I didn't shoot anything, we didn't eat anything. And uh, that was fifty-three years ago. And I just, uh, you know, I've just never come home. I've just stayed going to the world all these years and years and years and years. And and so I've been to so many. Of the I don't guess I've been to every communist nation in the world but I've been to so many of the communist nations in the world and the in the former communist nations and I was there when they were communists and um, I hate communism I despise it and uh, I, I hate to admit it but I've thrown a few old communists up against the wall over over the years and had to have people pull me off of them just because uh, it's it's an evil evil yes, evil yes, evil yes, yes. evil system there's nothing good about it. And uh, I've learned in all these years, in all these communist countries I've been to, that uh, communism has two enemies. And for a nation to go communist, they must get rid of or strongly control these two enemies. And those two enemies are the church and the middle class. They hate the church. Now they'll have some churches. Some come to me sometimes and say, now, nah, Brother Terry, there's churches and communists. Come down. I know there are. I've preached in them. But they're controlled churches. And they preach what they're told to preach. And there's spies out in the, in the audience who are taking notes every, every time. And then now electronic surveillance. Uh, but uh, the church in the middle class, uh, if they're functioning and strong, you can't have communism. Right. And so last year, for the first time in the United States of America, For the first time ever, our own government attacked the church and attacked the middle class. There are mom-and-pop businesses that have gone out that'll never be back. They told me in Michigan, uh, in Michigan last year, sixty thousand mom-and-pop businesses went out that'll never come back. And uh, there are churches that went out that'll never be back. We were in Lake Charles, Louisiana not very long ago, and they told me, they said, there's three big churches in town that have just, they've never opened again since, since the shutdown a year and a half ago. And they said, and they've announced this week they're done, they'll never open again, they're done. And that's the plan of hell, yes. is to yes. smite the shepherd, to smite the church, and to scatter the sheep. Amen? Yes. So I want you to know I'm proud of you for being here. Yes, <laughs> Pastor, I'm proud of you. You guys are heroes. I'd wash your feet. And uh, heroes for keeping the doors open and uh, for declaring the word of God. Amen. (laughs) And we're a big believer in the local church, and we're a big believer in the office of pastor. And uh, uh, those of you that are watching online, I want you to know I love you dearly. Love you. Love you, love you, love you. Glad you're watching online. But on the the other hand, I, I implore you. I beg you, I'm pleading with you to get back in church. I mean, get back in church. Do you know, Pastor, what the number one seller for Amazon was last year? Amazon.com, Amazon, their number one seller last year, pajamas. Seriously, pajamas, because people are staying home. I was getting my hair done here a couple of months ago and the lady's doing my hair, you know, and she said, oh, Brother Terry, I'm really enjoying this, uh, this online church stuff, this not being in church. She said, man, I just, every Sunday, I just, I just get so much done. I just do my dishes and I do my vacuuming and I got church going. And, and I said, whoa, whoa, time out. Whoa, stop. I said, you're not, you're not listening. Well, of course I'm listening. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're not focused. You're not sitting there with your Bible and your notepad and your pen and getting revelation, you know, you're, you, 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 you. You're missing the point. Amen. You know, when, 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 the, when the Holy Ghost wrote Hebrews 10.25, he was talking about today. He wasn't talking about back then. And he said, do not forsake. That's a commandment. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some do. And I tell you what, many are doing it. And he said, and even more so as you see the day approaching. Well, I'd say we're seeing the day not just approaching. I'd say it's here. Amen. Amen. And so our job as Christians, our job as the people of God, our job as conquerors more than than he told us we are, our job is to not forsake this assembly of ourselves together as some do, and even more so now that we see the day approaching. Just to be stronger in church and stronger in church, grab pastor's coattail and say, Pastor, you pastor this thing and we're, we're right with you. We're right behind you, we're going with you, amen. 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 So I appreciate every one of you that are here today. Delighted you're here, honor you for being here, glad you're here. And those of you that are watching at home, love you dearly, but I am begging and pleading with you. Come on back, come on back to church, get, get, get back in church. You, you, know, it's, you know, pastor, it's none of my business. In fact, it's really none of your business as pastor. It's really none of our business uh, what the people do as far as uh, wearing a mask. They can wear 10, 15, 25 masks. None of my business. Social distance, why? You can stay a mile apart. None of my business. Wash your hands a thousand times a day. None of my business. None of his business. Unless, pastor, they do it in fear. The instant they do it in fear, it's your business as a pastor as their pastor, and it's my business as an apostle to the church. Amen. We, we, because fear and faith, say this with me, fear and faith, fear and faith cannot, cannot live in the same house. Cannot live the same house. Fear and faith, fear and faith cannot, live cannot live in the same house. The same house. We, we, we are absolutely have a visceral reaction to fear. Fear should just make us mad. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I, I was raised out in West Texas, Midland, Texas, and, and, I, and I was born in 1950, so I was growing up in the 50s, and it was desert and windstorms and sandstorms and stuff like that. And, 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 and Pastor, we had rattlesnakes. <laughs> when I went outside to play in the backyard, I had to look for rattlesnakes, and I went out to play in the front yard, I had to look for rattlesnakes. Went out in the garage, I had to look for rattlesnakes, walking to school, walking home from school, always, always watching out for rattlesnakes, one of my friends got in the shower one day. He just took all his clothes off, got in the shower, reached up and grabbed the shower curtain and tried to shut it and it didn't shut and he pulled it and it didn't shut and he looked up to see why it didn't shut and there was a rattlesnake wrapped around the rod. So he just left and let him have it. You know. So just <laughs> <clears throat> but my point on that was that I, I, I've never, I have a visceral reaction to rattlesnakes. I'm not scared of them, I hate them. And I, I've never met a rattlesnake ever. I didn't kill if I met one today I'd kill it today I've killed them with guns I've killed them with rocks I've killed them with sticks with rakes with hoes with shovels with, uh, you run over them with cars I've, I've killed them every way you can imagine in fact as a teenager out in West Texas I always carried a pistol under my seat you know I'd be driving down the highway and a snake and out, or pull off in the ditch and reach down there and get that pistol
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I have a visceral reaction to them they make me mad they just make me mad And you can't cohabitate with them. You can't say to the rattlesnake, now look, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. We just live together. You be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. I won't hurt you, you don't hurt me. No, he'll get you. You can't put him in your pocket and make him a pet. He'll get you, he'll bite you. And don't be mad at him when he does, that's his job. That's his job. He doesn't have any other job. That's right. That's right. And I mean, I hate him. And Pastor, I feel the same way about sickness, yeah. about disease, about poverty, anything that hurts the people. People come up to me and say, well, I've been diagnosed with cancer. I've been diagnosed with this or this or this. It, it, just, it makes me mad. Not at the person, of course. But it just, I have that same visceral reaction where I just want to kill it. Because see the word God, the word of God says the power of life and death is what in the tongue. The power of life and death is in the tongue. We speak death and we speak life all day long. We're talking. We're talking. We're either talking death or we're talking life. Right. Exactly. All the time. And so, when when these diseases come, you can't cohabitate with them. Some Christians are just too nice. I've grabbed a couple of friends over the years and more than a couple over the years and just just shake them and say, listen to me. One of you is going to die. Somebody's going to die here. Either the cancer is going to die or you're going to die. You can't live and cohabitate with this thing and say, well, you be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. Let's let's just get along. No, somebody's going to die. And see, our job as Christians is to speak death to that thing. Death to cancer. Death to AIDS, HIV. Death to lupus. Death to leukemia. Death to COVID. 19, 20, 21, 20, however many they come up with. (laughs) Death to the Delta variant. Amen. Amen. However many they come up with. Aren't you glad God wrote, aren't you glad that the Holy Ghost wrote numbers, or, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, that's not all the curses, and that's not all the blessings. They're just kind of listed there in one spot, so we like to go there. But they're all the way through what we call the Pentateuch, or the law, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're all through there. And I just go on curse hunts all the time. Man, I just go to Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I just start hunting curses. And I get so excited when I find one, and I'll mark it in red and say, nope, not true for me, because Jesus reversed the curse. He took the curse for me. So I don't, nope, that's not mine. No, that's not mine. No, that's not mine. No, 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 right? And so when they're listed like they are in in Deuteronomy 28, where there's just a whole list of them, then it's just easy to go there, even though that's not all of them. But then right at the very end of Deuteronomy 28, he says, now everything we just listed is under the curse, plus every disease the devil ever invents in the future. Is under the curse. He didn't leave anything out. Whatever they invent next year, whatever flu they come up with next year, whatever variant they come up with next year, whatever whatever deal they come up with next year. God's already said it's under the curse. And he's already said Christ redeemed us from the curse. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. And then verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we should have a visceral reaction to anything that hurts people we should just have a visceral reaction and i have a visceral reaction about this staying home church thing because it hurts you
1: yes
0: it hurts you individually it hurts the church as a whole because we're not meant to be by ourselves; We're meant to be part of a great company. Brother Hagin used to always tell us that whenever Peter and John had that great miracle that they gave beautiful and pulled that guy up by the hand, he went running and leaping, praising the Lord. And then they, they, they beat him for it and tried to throw him in jail for it and uh, finally let him go because they said <laughs> they've done a notable miracle. And everybody in town knows it. We can't say anything about it. We can't do anything about it. So we'll just let him go. It says immediately they returned to their own company. Brother Hagin used to always say, most Christians today wouldn't have a clue who their company is and wouldn't have a clue where their company is. You see, we need to know who our company is and where our company is and stay with them. Yes, that's right. Send the pajamas back to Amazon. Yes. Amen. Yes. But anyway, we need to be together and not forsaken the assembling of ourselves yes, yes. together. The more we're together, the better we are. The more we're together and can grab Pastor's coattail and say, You go, Pastor. We're right, we're right with you. Amen. That's right. We don't want Pastor to turn around and look around and say, Uh hey. That's what Paul did one day. He said, he said, No man stood with me. Well, that's a He said, I looked around and no man stood with me save the Lord. Oh. Well, the Lord's good company. Yes. Jesus looked around and said, "Up. Uh, I thought I had all these 12 disciples and those other 70 disciples, where are they? Men are gone. See, we don't want pastor to turn around and say, where did everybody go? Well, we, we, we want him to be able to turn around and say, uh, my company's here. Amen. Devil, you mess with us and we'll leave you bleeding on the parking lot. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be in church. Praise God, happy Man. to be in church. There's products on the book table out there. All I can ever say about our book table is there's no theory back there. There's just no theory. There's not anything back there that I think might work. It's 53 years of third world missionary evangelism that I know for an absolute fact works. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, Lord. (laughs) An angel just got its wings. (laughs) We just... uh, I'll, I'll show you one of these that we just uh, just produced. We just I, I was preaching in Brother Copeland's church last week at Eagle Mountain, and so we had this ready just just for them. Uh, and it's called the Legacy Series, and this is Legacy Volume One. And so these are this is four old old. Uh, I always say I don't have sermons. I, I don't really preach sermons. You know I don't do three points in a poem. Uh, I, I do lifestyles. I, I do things that this will work for you. You know, this will keep your kids out of the hospital. This will. This will. This will. This will help you. This will bless you. This will, you know. And so these are four of those messages that God gave me overseas uh, over the period of years in different places for different specific situations where we where God uses us to change history or to make history or to actually change a nation. Right. And so these will bless you and help you. And uh, one of them is called Who Do You Say Jesus Is. One of them is called Salvation of the Lord. One's How to Live Stable in Unstable Times. You know you can live stable. In these unstable times, you, you can't keep your head with everybody around you losing theirs, right? And then uh, where the word of a king is, there's power. What a, what a, what a word that is. Uh, this, little, this little single this little single right here, I don't know what we sell it for, a few dollars or whatever, but, but it's worth a million. Right. We're not going to sell it for a million, but, we're, but it's worth a million. <laughs> and, and all this is, pastor, is, is one of those generals. You know, we've got to have fathers and mothers in the faith. We've got to have those generals. And and I've had some, I've had the best. I've had the cream of the crop. Most of them are all gone now. And uh, one of them was John Osteen, Joel's daddy. And uh, Brother Osteen, John Osteen, uh, when I was 18 years old, he came to our church in West Texas. And my pastor came to me. I was a youth leader. And my pastor came to me and said, Terry, uh, Brother Osteen's coming to preach for us for a few days. How would you like to be his boy? And uh, just drive him around, and you know, do stuff for him. Anything he wants done, just 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 do it, and uh, be with him, and just be his. You know, I said, sure. I said I'd pay to do it. What I couldn't figure out is what's wrong with you, pastor? Why wouldn't you do it? I (laughs) mean, yeah, give me that job, and twice on Sunday. And so I'd drive him around these several days, and and he had partners in different towns around there. One forty miles away, one twenty miles away, and then. And so every day he'd say, drive me here, drive me here. And I'd just, I'd drive. And, uh, and I wouldn't talk to him, you know, unless he talked to me. I mean, I didn't bother him. I just was driving. And then if he'd say something to me, then I'd, I'd talk to him. And we were driving on one of those 40-mile trips one day. And, and I'm just driving along. And, and he said, Terry, and I said, yes, sir. And I was 18 years old. And he said, uh, God's a good checker player. God's a good checker player. And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) And he didn't say anything else. And so I'm just driving along and he's just sitting there not saying anything. And finally, after, you know, five miles or so, (laughs) seemed like an eternity to me. Finally, I said, sir. He said, yes. I said, may I ask you a question? He said, of course. I said, what does that mean? (laughs) And he said, well, son, he said, if you're praying about something, believe in God for something. Fasting about something, confessing something, trying to make something happen and nothing's happening. God's not moving. Heaven's not moving. He said, always remember God's a good checker player and he doesn't move out of turn. That's good. Wow. Yeah, that's worth a million dollars. I'm telling you right now. It has changed. It changed my life that day when I was 18. It changed my life. And for the last 53 years, I've still used it all the time because when something's not happening, he said, then stop and say, Lord, uh, is it my turn? Are you waiting on me? Because if he's waiting on you, he's not going to move. You know, that, you know, Moses came to the Jordan River, brought all those folks from Egypt after 430 years in captivity, and God said, now arise and go over this Jordan. And they messed up and didn't do it. And so 40 years later, wandering around the wilderness, Moses is dead now. And God says to Joshua, hey, Moses is dead. <laughs> now arise and go over this Jordan. Same word. 40 years later, God never changed his mind. Same word. And I tell you, this has saved my life. It's changed my life. It's made me money, saved me money, kept me, protected me, blessed me. And it's just that simple little phrase from an old general. Just a golden nugget from a a great man of God, one of my spiritual fathers. And it's just absolutely just, and it's one of those things you'll remember forever. I mean, you you, you don't even have to take notes on it. I mean, God's a good checker player. You know, and to find out who's moving. Spiritual authority is what Pastor talked about a while ago. This is what Mike Webb always wants me to preach, spiritual authority. There's 11 CDs in here. There's a bunch in here, but yet I don't think we've scratched the surface. There could be 100 CDs in there. We just I'm, I'm doing a book on it now that's going to be just absolutely tremendous. And uh, we, we, we need to learn some things about spiritual authority because everything we do is wrapped up in that. Amen. In this series, it's called Missions, a Purpose of Faith. There's a lot more out there, but these are the ones I wanted to share with you today. Missions is the purpose of faith. God's using his faith. You know, you only use your faith for something you don't have. You know, if you got $100, you're not believing God for $100. If you got a new car, you're not believing for a new car. If you got a new house, you're not believing for a new house. You only believe for something you don't have. And so uh, the question is, what's God using his faith for? He paves his streets with gold. He builds his gates out of pearls, his fences out of precious stone. What is it he doesn't have and can't have? Well, souls. It's the only thing he can't have. It's the only thing he's depending on us for. See, we're able to fulfill his dream, fulfill his desire. Isn't that right? And give him what he's believing for. And so missions is the purpose of faith. And Brother Hagin used to always tell, he used to tell me at dinner too. He told me one day at dinner, he said, said, Terry, he said, Jackie and know, I mean, my first wife, Jackie's in heaven today, and, and, and Sister Hagen, Aretha, laughed at Dad and I, Brother Hagen and I, one day we were in the airport together. And we were sitting there, you know, just, just kind of sitting in these airport chairs, and kind of leaning back. Brother Hagen always leaned back like this and do his thumbs like, up <laughs> like that. And so Aretha and Jackie were over there looking at us, and they laughed at us. And boy, they're big talkers, aren't they? they just sitting there. just. And so Dad said to me, he said, Terry. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, uh, I've seen Jesus a number of times and been to heaven a number of times. I said, yes, sir. And he said, said, I use that to tell how spiritual people are. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how's that? And he said, well, he said, most Christians come up to me and say, Brother Hagin, what did Jesus look like? He said, the spiritual people come up to me and say, what did Jesus say? Yeah. And he said, so I judge people. It's my thermometer on how I judge people. And I thought, that's a good deal. Well, this is my thermometer on how I judge people. Spiritual people will buy this. So if, if, if this sells, <laughs> I'll let you know today if your church is spiritual or not. Because most Christians don't, don't, don't care about or know about or buy stuff about missions. I just preached at Brother Copeland's uh, church last week in the Bible school, KCBC. And uh, then they asked me, they said, would you do the missions class? I said, absolutely, let me do the missions class. And I got up there and there's 19 students. Out Out of several hundred, there's only 19 students in missions. And I said, that's sad. That's really sad. Because missions, after all, can't be too important. It's just the thing Jesus died for. It's the thing Paul had his head cut off for. It's the thing Peter was crucified upside down for. It was why all those apostles died in the mission fields. You know, every one of those apostles were missionaries, except one, he was a traitor. Isn't that right? So the church ought to be involved and interested in missions more than any other subject. Amen. Amen. Y'all still here? Come on, Renee, greet the people. Preach, pray, sing, go with the keyboard, <laughs> prophesy. I wouldn't tell jokes or dance. I've seen you dance and <laughs> I've heard you tell jokes. I, you, can talk, you can talk in my microphone. I'll just
1: talk into Terry's here. Um, uh, hi, darling. <laughs> uh, we are just thrilled and honored for the opportunity to be here with you today, um, Mike and Beth have been, have become friends. Terry will probably tell you a little bit more about our relationship in the past, but um, I was married to uh, Pastor Dean Garner for 44 years, and Terry was married to his lovely wife, my wonderful friend, Jackie Mize, uh, for 44 years. And then he and I have been married for seven years. And uh, they both went on to heaven and left us, and uh, you know, you, when, you, when you face life's challenges like that, and you suffer such great loss, and everything has been just changed, and here are things have been going along, all the dreams, all the plans, all the hopes are, are now valid, invalid, and you have to figure out, well, what's next, Lord? You know, what do we do next? <laughs> and what is the plan? Because we all know nothing is a surprise to the Lord, right? Psalm 139 has been such a tremendous comfort to me now for, um, uh, my husband was very ill for a long time, and then we ended up, you know, having to live by faith and all the things that you do in life, raising children and working through transitions, and we were in the middle of a huge building program, and, uh, just one thing after, you know, how, how many times can you make something worse, you know, and, uh, if you just keep throwing stuff in the bad stuff in the pot, and after a while you just realize that that um, you have to take your hands off of it and trust God. And Psalm Psalm 139 has been the great comfort to my soul in that I know that from the very moment of my conception on this planet, God had written in a book already on the shelves of heaven every day of my life planned. And I just kept going back to that. I just kept going back to that. Nothing is a surprise to you. You already have this written down. And I don't know what's going to happen, but just give me what's in the book for today. (laughs) Just give me what's in the book. That's all I need to know. I can walk by faith through that. I know you have the book. I know you have the plan. And just give me what's in the book for today because I don't have a clue, you know. And um, I won't go into a lot of detail about all of that. But, you know, I know the Lord is so good. I love that song that ha- has been recently written. It says, All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that, I ha- that I'm that i able, I will thank you <laughs> no, and sing of the goodness of the Lord. And I've just found out so much about the goodness of God over the last decade. And I've found out my husband's been gone now for almost 10 years. And I'm just so thankful for the goodness of God. If I have ever been, you're looking at a desperate woman. <laughs> and um, I think Christians grow better when you're desperate, when you don't have all the answers. Not because you're going through trials and tests, but you have to keep, it's just like a weightlifter. They say, you have to stay hungry, you know. But I think as a Christian, you have to stay desperate. You have to stay all the time ready uh, to confess the fact that I don't have a clue, you know, the silly little things the world say, I got this, well, you know, I've, I've lived a few years and I still can't tell you I got this, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm more codependent, dependent upon the Lord now than I've ever been in my whole life, and it's been because I've had to trust God, and I'm so thankful that he asked us to walk by faith, live by faith not live by what we see or what we feel and be, and be isolated to the human human relationship. But we have such a supernatural relationship <laughs> with a God that we're going to live forever with. Isn't that amazing? You know, sometimes I just close my eyes and just say, I'm going to live forever. You know, I'm going to live forever. One of my little boys, when, we, when they were very small, four or five years old, uh, said to me, I one day I said, and he said, "But mom, we didn't get to go to Toys R Us today," and he was just you know nearly in tears, not quite crying yet about it. It was a plea for help, you know, and uh, and I said, "Oh, that's all right, darling. You're going to live forever. You're not going to miss a thing," and and you have to you have to continually train the soul, uh, like Terry was talking about. Your your pastors watch for your souls. To keep you out of fear, to keep you out of worry, to show you from the Word of God the plan that God has to have a mind that's alive to God, to have a mind that's renewed to the Word of God and hope and faith, to have a mind that's not a playground for hell to keep you in fear and in worry. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? You know, you've come in here today to slap your brain around and to realize that you've got to learn the Word of God. That God's got to God's got something so much higher for you to think than what you're thinking, and sometimes I've told the Lord, I, Lord, I can only think about five foot five today, looking at that situation, and I need a much higher thought, like Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are not His thoughts, my ways are not His ways, because His ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, so we can trust that kind of God. Amen. Amen. Um, well, I'll let you talk about this, but, or unless you want me to, but, you know, um, we have something that, um, and you know, and we're not, we're not here marketing us today. So, you know, if you don't like me, that's okay. That's all right. I don't mind at all, you know, because, uh, my attitude is I'm going to love you anyway. And, uh, you know, if Terry and I are here and you're ch- sizing us up, well, we're doing the same thing to you. You know, we're all checking each other out. And the only person that's really gonna, going to not ever disappoint us will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. We're not gathering to one another Your pastors are not building a kingdom for themselves. We're not doing the same. We're just all trying to help each other, you know, make it through the night (laughs) and survive our own life. How many of you are just so thankful you've survived your own life, you know, much less the attack of the devil? But every year at Christmas, we told your pastors about this. Um, My first husband and I uh, helped support whatever they were doing in that regard. And, And when they lived in Corpus Christi, they came to our church. And um, we we just enjoyed hearing all the tremendous things that Terry and Jackie were doing around the world. Hallelujah. You know, and he came in and he would inspire our church and just uh, encourage us to do bigger and better things and keep our focus on the lost. And not just us four and no more. Well, I need a new car and I don't don't have, you know, just get all the the owies (laughs) out of your life, you know, to where you're not a victim. Don't victimize yourself, you know. Uh, just thank God for all the good things that you've got. And when Terry would come in and he'd tell the stories of where they'd been around the world and the blind eyes that were open and the deaf ears that were open and the, all of the things that were happening and on occasion had raised the dead and just seen devils cast out, tumors fall off, you know. I mean, we were so inspired by that that it just caused a change and a shakeup in our church. And how many of you know sometimes you just need somebody to slap you around? you know, and say, come on, get out, you know, uh, don't be like Martha. Stop tripping in the kitchen here. We got to get you moving on out. You know, we got to get you out there where you're doing something for the Lord and get your mind off yourself. So when Terry and Jackie would tell us about their, their efforts at Christmas to help orphans, it was always such a wonderful thing. You know, children are the heritage of the Lord. And, um, uh, the the communist thinking around the world is to despise the elderly and to despise the unborn, and the and the young and the and the vulnerable, and yet the church this can be our finest hour of course is to show how, what kind of tremendous respect we have for life, that we respect all life and that we respect everyone and that we're here to help whomever <laughs> needs help and so at Christmas through Jackie Mize International Children's Foundation, we have given to the world through all of these wonderful orphanages. And I was telling um, uh, Jeanette last night, I said, this brochure is worth the map. <laughs> because last this past year in 2020, when we did not know what was going to happen uh, to the orphan giving at Christmas, and we didn't know if, if people not working and all the things that were happening in in the country and around the world, that Jackie Mize International Children's Foundation had the biggest year they've ever had, giving to orphans. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? We have some of those flowers, I believe, out there. I'll just give that to y'all, and y'all can keep that and look at it. But we gave to over 40 different orphanages in 22 countries, and we gave gave at least 2,000, and others we gave more to, And we were able to buy two vans for two different orphanages, one in India that helps special needs children to go back and forth to the hospital. They have a lot of care they have to give these children. And then also uh, a a girls' orphanage in Myanmar, Burma. And uh, we were just so excited about that. We put three roofs on three widow's houses in uh, Botswana and, uh, and two in Romania. And Terry has done a tremendous work in Romania for over 20 years with orphanages and the gypsies over there. And we have just, you know, we're, we're about the master's business all the time. Helping people, loving people, feeding people, <laughs> taking care of orphans, and all of these things that God uh, has allowed us the wonderful privilege and honor to do. And so we are so excited about all these things that God is doing. You know, when you're, when you're busy helping people and you feel like you're not just a, a dead sea, but you're a, a wonderful river of blessing out to the world all the time, um, then, then the Lord gives you the resources to do that with. is that wonderful? And, uh, you know, we, we believe God for everything that we need in our life, and we see the Lord do uh, miracles, you know, for that, but we see the biggest miracles when we're out doing something for other people. And that's the most exciting thing, you know, that, that as pastors and ministers, that we get to really oversee and see the big picture uh, of what's happening and what the needs are in people's lives and how we can help them. That it's both—it's always the practical side of life that the Lord wants to give food, just like Jesus fed the multitude, and then He also wants to go to somebody's house and heal them and raise them from the dead. You know, it's just such a wonderful life—the most noble. Dignified, glorious life on the planet is the Christian life. And we just admire and salute and applaud your attendance in this church and your help to go to the world and your faithfulness to serve God and not allow the things of this world to crowd you. Hallelujah. Crowd out your life. Crowd out your thinking. I'm telling you, fight for sanity. (laughs) Fight for sanity. Fight to think higher than you've ever thought before so that you do not live a low-class Christian life and that you live high, thinking the thoughts of God. Hallelujah. God bless you. We're delighted to be here. Like Terry said, we're here to wash your feet with the Word of God. And, and you know, it just doesn't matter uh, what we all look like in the flesh. That You know, that's, that's nothing, you know. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. It just just doesn't give you any extra perks or anything about who you are in the flesh, male or female, young or old. You know, I just don't give a rip anymore. How about you? (laughs) I mean, we're just, I mean, after you've you've faced as much garbage that's out there in the world and all the stuff the devil's trying to do to kill everybody and take people to hell, my goodness, strap on your armor and go fight something, you know? I mean, go take on everything you can to just destroy the works of the enemy, and stand in faith, and do not let anybody intimidate you into thinking you're dwarfed, you're small, you don't have the ability, you don't haven't done that, you haven't been there, you had, don't have this or that. I mean, just shake all that stuff off. It doesn't matter. I got the Holy Ghost, you know, and we're we're not gonna miss nothing, darling. Come on, hallelujah. Let me get all this stuff all out of the way.
0: Praise the Lord. Stand up with me if you would, please. That brochure, by the way, there's some out there, and and it's not a fundraiser. Everybody understand that, please. It's it's strictly a report. We're just proud of what our partners did. It doesn't ask you for a dime. There's no no fundraising to it. It's just we were so pleased with what God did and what our partners did. It's just a report, so uh, just look at it and rejoice with us and get excited uh, about what God's doing. And uh, uh, Say this with me. I know God is good. Say it like you mean it, I know God is good, and I, God is good. And, I is and I know his word is truth. Praise the Lord. His word is truth. Jesus said, Father, thy word is truth. Wow. When I found that scripture as a teenager, it changed my life. I said, if that's true, and it is, then I can, if I can find it in this book, I can make it happen. If I can, if I can find it in here, I can take it to the bank. Amen. His word is absolute, it's absolute truth. truth. It's not just true. It's truth. Amen. And there's a vast difference in true and truth. Amen. Amen. Truth is the only thing that trumps true. Amen. Truth is the only thing that changes facts. It may be true the devil's picking on you. Right. It may be true you've received a diagnosis or prognosis from a doctor. It's not too good. Maybe may be true you've received an ultimatum or a declaration from a family member or, a, or an employer or the government. That may be true. It may be a fact. But you can go into the Word, which is the truth, Amen. and slap it up against that thing that's just true Amen. and change it to where it's not true anymore. It's not, it's not a fact anymore. Boy, right. Amen. Father, thank you for your Word. Minister yeah. to us by your Spirit this morning. Uh, speak to us. Direct us. Minister to us. Lift us. Love us. <laughs> Holy Spirit, I thank you for turning the light on. Thank you for pricking our heart as you did on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. Thank you for moving on our will and causing us to say, I will serve the Lord. I will, I will, I will. We thank you for it. I believe you to cause us to leave here today saying, surely the Lord, not Terry Mize, but the Lord has ministered to us. And we can go out of here with our head up and our shoulders back, realizing we're bigger than we thought we were, better than we thought we were, and can do more than we thought we could do. Because we're Christians, Christ-like ones, imitators of King Jesus. And we have the answers to the world's problems. And we thank you for it and give you glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. When God had built the world, he had built all the the flowers and the trees and the oceans and the rivers. And it was gorgeous. It was wonderful. I, I just stop and think every now and then how gorgeous it must have been. Because I go to some gorgeous places in the world still. Here we are in 2020. There's some gorgeous places still in the world. But what must it have been before the fall? I mean, the reds must have been red, and the blues blue, and the greens green, and the water's crystal clear, and the sands crystal white. I mean, just you know. It, it, but he had built all this for us, and when he, he then he built all the animals uh, for us, and then finally, 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 when he's through with all that. Then he said in verse 26 of Genesis 126, he said, now let us make men, men and women. Now let us make men and women, men in our likeness, in our image, and let them, them men and women, let them have dominion. Now, you know, we use the word today power, and we use the word authority, we use the word faith. God used a much stronger word. He He said, let them have dominion. He said, I want them to dominate. I want them to be the dominating factor on the earth. He said, let them have dominion over the fowl of the air, over the fish of the sea, over the cattle, the beasts of the field, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's heart and intent was, I love Genesis 126, because we see right into the heart of God. We see just exactly what he was thinking, just exactly what his dream was, what his heart was, what his vision was, that that he would have a people that would dominate the planet. Well, he's never changed his mind from that. He's never changed his mind, and he never intended to have two peoples. He only intended there to be one people, his people, and then Adam messed that up and caused there to be two people. But God has not changed his mind that he wants you, us, his people, to be the dominating factor. We're not left here as more than beggars and more than losers. We're left here as more than conquerors. He wants us to absolutely dominate the whole planet from the animals to the weather to the, to, I mean, all of it. We're not just left here just to say, oh, well, you know, we hear the TV and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. We hear a politician, oh, well, that's well. We hear Hollywood, oh, well, that's well." No, 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 no. No, we're, we're the dominating factor. We're the force to be reckoned with. And all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament, everybody knew that. And in America, we used to know that until maybe about 30 years ago. But used to, we, everybody, everybody gave credence to the church, everybody quoted Scripture. Well, you go look at your old black and white movies, you know, that was made in America and all the judges are quoting scriptures, all the lawyers are quoting scriptures. And, you know, in America, back in, in the day, you could not be an attorney and you could not be a judge unless you first went to theological seminary and became a preacher to, to, to know the Bible because the idea was how can you know the truth? How can you judge how can you be a fair lawgiver if you don't know the truth? And the truth, Jesus said, is the word of God. So when all these Ivy League colleges were started, Yale and Harvard and Princeton, all, they were all theological seminaries. They were all Bible schools. Well, how the mighty have fallen. Isn't that amazing? And so, you know, the church always was prominent. It was preeminent. Man, Congress prayed and Congress had church right there in in Congress. I mean, all of our history, go back and look at our history. It's all where the church was, you know. King George, in fact, in England, whenever the Revolutionary War was going on, King George made this statement. He said, I am more afraid of the black-robed regiment, meaning the preachers because they all wore black robes when they preached. He said, I'm more afraid of the black-robed regiment than I am of all of George Washington's Continental Army. He knew where the power was. Because those preachers would preach, and when they'd finished preaching, they'd take their black robe off, and underneath it's their military uniform and their guns, and then say, "I'm off to war, guys. Who's going with me?" And the, all the men in the church would grab their gun and go with him. And the church is where you talked about politics. The church is where all the news came from. Everybody went to church to find out what's going on and what to, what to think about it. That's That's why you know. That's why they started the. Uh, Back in the 60s, that's why they passed the, the Lyndon, uh, 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 the Johnson Amendment and said churches can't talk about politics. Pastor, you can't talk about politics in the church. Well, why not? Jay Leno could. <laughs> and he reached millions of people every night. Yeah. David Letterman could. All these knotheads on, on uh, late night TV today, they can talk about politics and do anything they want to do. But don't you dare let the church do it. See, again, there's that, that attack on the church. We've got to control the church. They're scared of the church. The church has the authority. The church has the dominion. And the church has the power. And it seems to me the world knows that now more than the church knows it. Right. We've just become subservient and just compliant and just nice little Christians, you know. Uh, and we were never supposed to be that. We were supposed to be the dominating factor. Amen. Amen. Renee and I are always saying, you know, you, you need to be as fierce as an Old Testament warrior. Yet you need to have the love and the kindness and the grace and the faith and the compassion and all that of a New Testament believer. And so just in your daily life, just go through life being compassionate and grace and faith and, and you know, praise the Lord and pass some mashed potatoes. And isn't God wonderful? And isn't this, but the instant the devil sticks his head up, you turn into a fierce I mean, a fierce Old Testament warrior. The Bible tells us when they were building the wall in Nehemiah that they, they built the wall with a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. And that's where the church needs to be today. We need to have the fierceness of an Old Testament warrior, even though we're nice, compassionate, loving, forgiving, grace, faith, New Testament believers. But we're not pushovers, we're the dominating factor and we need to get back to being the dominating factor. And you know, all the kings in the Old Testament, they they all knew they weren't in charge. Did you ever read the Old Testament? Those kings knew they weren't in charge. They knew that the man of God was in charge. The prophet was in charge. Now, some of the kings didn't like it, and some of the kings didn't live that way, and they paid the penalty. They paid the price for it. But it was the prophets that made the kings king. It was prophet Samuel that came to a guy named Saul, and said, Saul, come here, son, stand right there. And he took the horn, he filled it up with oil, poured it over his head, it ran down his hair, and his beard, and his clothes on the floor. You know, we carry that little bitty bottle in our pocket today, we give him just a little dab. No, that's not what they did. I mean, they took a ram's horn and filled it with oil. And I mean, they poured it over your head, and it ran down. Boy, church folks wouldn't like that today, man. Mess up my silk clothes, you know. <laughs> but I mean, they were serious about anointing back in those days. Yeah. And he said, you're now the king of Israel. Wow. But see, it was the prophet that was in charge. Samuel walked in one day and he said, Saul, God wants you to go over here. Thus saith the Lord, go over here to this village and kill everybody. Kill every man, boy, dog, cat, mosquito, mosquito. Kill them all. Don't you leave one thing alive. You kill every one of them. And don't you bring back any, any gold or any goods. I mean, you destroy the whole thing. And he said, yes, sir. And so Saul went and did that, except he brought back some, you know, the pretty people, the beautiful people, and the gold, and the this, and the nice animals, and the this, and that. And uh, Samuel comes walking in, and he said, uh, did you do what I told you to do? Yes, sir, I did. He said, then why is it I hear the bleeding of the sheep? he said, well, the people made me do it. The people wanted me to bring back some things to sacrifice to the Lord. And he said, that's not what I told you to do. And so so Samuel took took the sword and went out back and killed. I mean, it says he hacked. He hacked King Agag to death and killed all those people and all those animals. He came out to Saul and said, you better straighten your act up, son. But it's not the king that's in charge, it's the prophet then one day Saul decided he wanted to go to war. And so he went down to the temple and he said, he said, hey, I need to see the prophet. Uh, I'm going to war and I want him to bless me. And they said, well, sir, he's not here, but he's on his way. He'll be here. Saul paced up and down, looked at his watch, paced and looked at his watch, paced and looked at his watch. Finally, he said, well, I can't wait anymore. He said, they poured the horn, the horn of oil over me. I'm anointed. I'm a man of God. I'll just have my own church service and bless myself. And so he did. And in walks the prophet. And he said, what did you do? what did you do? Well, I needed to go to war and wanted you to bless me and you weren't here and I just blessed myself. After all, you poured the oil on me and I'm, I'm anointed. I'm, I'm a man of God. He said, oh no. No, you're just the king. You're just the king. You're not the man of God. And he said, because of what you've done, you're a dead man. And your son, Jonathan, is a dead man. And you know the story. They both died. Who's in charge? King Saul? No. Nope. It's the prophet. Samuel's in charge. David saw Bathsheba, took her, committed adultery with her. She got pregnant. He didn't want anybody to know it, so he, went, he called her husband back from war so he'd sleep with her. And they could say, it's his baby, not mine. And uh, her husband was such an honorable man. He said, well, my men are sleeping out in the field in battle. I'm not going to sleep in my bed with my wife. So he slept on the floor. Wouldn't have any relations with her. So that didn't work for David. And so he just had him killed. to so name he's a murderer. Jesus. And then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And she's pregnant. Everything's going along fine. David's king. He's got all his wives, all his concubines. He's got Bathsheba. Everything's wonderful. And in walks the prophet Nathan. And he said, what did you do? I know what you did. And because of what you did, that baby is going to die. And the baby died. So who's in charge, King David? No, the prophet's in charge. King Ahab was one of the most wicked people in the world. The Bible says there's never been anybody that sold himself to do evil like Ahab. The only person worse than Ahab was that wicked wife of his Jezebel. In First Kings chapter 21 tells us that Ahab went down one day and saw this gorgeous vineyard. And he said, who owns this vineyard? And they said, Naboth owns it. So he went to see Naboth he said, hey, I like your vineyard. I want to buy it. And he said, thank you, King. It's not for sale. Yeah, but I want it. Yeah, but it's not for sale. Well, I'll trade you some other property for it. It's not for sale. I'll give you lots of money for it. It's not for sale. And so he goes back and gets in a fetal position and sucks his thumb and cries and Jezebel comes in and says, honey, what's the matter? Tell mama what's wrong. Mama fix it for you. You just tell mama what's wrong. And he says, I want that vineyard down there and Naboth won't sell it to you. Honey, you just take a nap. I'll fix this. So she goes and has Naboth and his son's killed. She comes back to Ahab and she says, wake up, honey, wake up, honey. I, mama got that vineyard for you. It's yours. Just go down there and take it. Just go down there. Oh, he's so happy. He got up. He goes down there looking around the vineyards. my vineyard. is wonderful. And in walks Elijah. And King Ahab saw Elijah and he was scared out of his mind. And he said, he said these words. He said, Elijah, my old enemy. Have you found me? He's scared of him. Have you found me? Yeah, I found you and I know what you did. And because of what you did, the same dog's that lick the blood of Naboth will lick your blood. You're a dead man. And that wicked woman of yours, uh, she's going to die and the dogs are going to eat her body and there'll be nothing left that anybody recognized to bury. Who's in charge? Can you imagine the Secret Service having a problem with this? <laughs> the prophet's in charge. It's not the king. And so Ahab goes to battle. You know the story. They shoot him with an arrow. He bleeds out in the chariot and dies. And uh, some sergeant said to a corporal or a private son, take that chariot down into the water and wash the blood out of it. So he did. And when he did, here came those dogs and licked the blood. And then the prophet went over to another prophet's house. And one of the, one of the prophet's sons, one of the sons of the prophets, uh, Elijah said to him, said, hey, son, come here. He said, see this box of oil? Yes, sir. Take it down the road here and there's a house. Knock on the door. It's in 2 Kings chapter nine now. He said, knock on the door and ask for a soldier named Jehu. Tell Jehu you've got a word from the Lord for him. Take him in the back room, pour this oil over his head and tell him he's king of Israel. This is the prophet making kings. We don't even know this kid's name. He just was the sons of the prophet. We don't even know his name. And so he goes down the road and he knocks on the door and some soldier comes to the door and he says, I need to see Jehu. And he said, well, Captain Jehu's in here. So so they came in there and he said, sir, I've got a word from the Lord for you. And he said, okay. He said, can we go to the back room? And he said, sure. they went to the back room and he says, "Uh, I need to pour this over your head and I'm going to tell you what the Lord said. So he pours this oil over Jehu's head and he says, "Uh, thus saith the Lord, you're the king of Israel. And Jehu said, well, if I'm the king, I'm just going to go kill all Ahab's kids. Ahab had like 70 kids. He said, I'm just going to go kill them all. So he goes out and jumps in his chariot and takes off. And I guess he drove kind of like pastor does, you know, because the Bible, the Bible says Jehu was known for his furious driving. So anytime, anytime anybody saw a guy going down the road, you know, oh, that's Jehu. And so, so they recognized him. He took off and heading for Jezreel. And so they saw him, two enemy kings who were were brothers, Ahab's boys. And uh, they sent two messengers out there and they said, stop, that's Jehu. Go out there and stop him, ask him if he comes in peace. So they run out there, Jehu, stop, stop. You come in peace? He said, no, I don't come in peace. What do you know about peace? Get out of my way. So the other messenger stopped him. Jehu, do you come in peace? No, I don't come in peace. What do you know about peace? Get out of my way. So the two kings ride their chariots out there and say, Jehu, stop. Do you come in peace? He said, no, I don't come in peace. What do you know about peace? He said, your mother's whoredoms and her witchcraft has caused all this problem and I'm gonna kill all of you. Boy, they turned around their chariots and took off and he took an arrow and shot one of them and killed him and took an arrow and shot the other one and he wounded him and he died later. And then he goes riding into Jezreel and Jezebel heard he was coming. And the Bible says when she heard he was coming, says she painted her face and plaited her hair. And she ran to the window and threw the windows open so she could watch him ride into town. And so he rides into town. And he sees her up there in that window. And there happened to be a soldier standing up there beside her. And so he said, throw that woman out the window. That soldier goes. And the Bible says she fell and splatted at his feet. And it says the blood splattered up on his horse and splattered up on the wall of the house. And then he just ran over just that insult to injury. Man, he just ran over with his horse and chariot. Left her in the street and went in the house and got something to eat. <laughs> and while he's eating, he says, by the way, guys, that woman is the daughter of a king. Somebody ought to go bury her. They say, yes, sir. They came back in a few minutes. They said, uh, sir, there's nothing left to bury. The dogs ate her. Yeah. See, so all that's left is the soles of her feet, her hands, her skull. That's it. That's exactly what the prophet said. See, who's in charge? The king? No, the prophet. It's always the people of God that's, right. that's in charge. That's right. Always has been, always will be. Even if people of God don't know it. That's right. Right. Even if people of God sleep through it. Right. You know, God's people have had a horrible habit over the centuries and centuries and centuries of going to sleep. Yeah. You know, when Jesus was going to Gethsemane, I mean, they, he said, pray with me. They said, yes, sir, and they slept. He came and woke woke them up and said, Just pray with me an hour, guys. I'm hurting here. I need you to pray with me. Help me here. Pray with me an hour. Yes, sir, Lord, we'll pray an hour. And they went to sleep. World War I, the Christians were asleep. World War II, they were asleep. Where was the church in Nazi Germany? I've often wondered. Amen. The Lutheran church was strong, strong, strong. But well, where were they? See? Church slept through 9 /11. is Isn't yeah, that amazing? See, we, we, we need to wake up. I'm not talking about being woke. You know, there wouldn't be a successful woke culture if the church hadn't gotten into a coward culture. The church can't get in fear. Fear and faith cannot live in the same house. Can't do it. We absolutely have to operate in faith and know that we're in authority. We have spiritual authority, spiritual dominion. You know, in, in 1958... Uh, uh, 19, excuse me, January the 1st, 1959, President Fidel Castro uh, made himself president of Cuba, took over the land. They had a great revolution. And, and, and so the, one of the first orders he issued, as does every communist country, by the way, uh, and, and, and Mr. Obama tried to do it here a few years ago, the first issue, order he issued was there will be no Christmas You cannot have a Christmas tree. You know, Mr. Obama told us we had to call it a holiday tree. Couldn't call it a Christmas tree. And, you know, we can't have Ten Commandments out here and we can't, blah, blah, blah. And and, as Castro said, you cannot sing Christmas songs. You cannot have Christmas lights. You cannot have Christmas trees. Uh, There will be no celebrations. Christmas is just another day. It's not a holiday. It's not a holy day. It's just another day you work in the sugarcane fields. And so for 45 years, Silent Night was silent in Cuba. Didn't have Christmas for 45 years. And, uh, I was over there, I, I, pre, I had been preaching there for about 20 years at the time, and uh, and so I, 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 there, there's 13 men that have always run Cuba. There's Fidel, who's now dead, and his brother Raul, who was president and just stepped down now, and then 11 other men that have always run Cuba, and I know some of those men in my many years of preaching there, and, uh, and so I happened to be in the office of one of those gentlemen, the nicest one, the only one that was never in the army and never in the revolution, never killed anybody. Uh, and uh, I was in his office talking to him uh, in the spring of 2004. And so I said to him, I said, sir, I said, Cuba hadn't had Christmas in 45 years since 1958. He said, yes, sir, that's right. And uh, I said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't, why don't I bring you a tree this year? I'll bring you a big 40 footer and we'll decorate that rascal and we'll have Christmas and it'll be a gift from the Christians in America to the people of Cuba. And he said, oh no, Dr. Mize, we can't do that. And I said, oh, come on, let's do it. He said, no, no, we can't do that. And I, I, I bugged him for about an hour to come on, let's do it. And he told me for about an hour, no, we're not going to do it. And uh, I don't know how many of y'all, y'all are pasta cookers. Any, you, any Italian mamas in here you know how to cook pasta? Uh, you, you know, the way you tell, tell me how you tell pasta's done. Throw it against the wall. Throw it against the wall. And so you throw pasta against the wall, and if it sticks to the wall, it's done. And if it slimes down the wall, it's not done yet. Well, well, Pastor, I've always seen myself in the spirit, I've always seen myself in the ministry of throwing pasta against the wall <laughs> all over the world. I just go in these countries and I just start throwing stuff against the wall and see if it'll stick. And a lot of times it doesn't, and sometimes it does. And so I saw myself that day talking to him. I said, Hey, let's, let me bring you a Christmas tree. And I'm, I'm seeing myself throw that. And he's Oh, no, Dr. Miles, we can't do that. So I'm seeing him go, Ding. and so several more times, Come on, let me do it. No. And so this went on, for like I said, for about an hour. And I left and said, Oh, well, it didn't work. didn't stick. Sometimes it do, and sometimes it don't. Well, uh, come the end of November of that year, that was in the spring, and I'd already forgotten about it, didn't think any more about it. Come the end of November of '04, I got a tele, uh, an email from this gentleman. And he said, Dr. Mize, if your offer of the Christmas tree is still good, we would like to have it, and we'd like you to personally bring it, and we'd like it on December 10th, and we would like it, uh, uh, we'll set it up in St. Francis de Assisi Square in Havana, and uh, we'd like for you to have a Christmas tree lighting ceremony and tell us the Christmas story. And I thought, now Castro made this an atheist state and a communist state in 1963. Uh, do they know what the Christmas story is? And he said, and we'll have the, the one, the only TV station in the whole nation. We'll have it come, them come out and, and film the thing so everybody in the country will see it. And said, said, you can sing songs and you can decorate the tree, tell us the Christmas story. And he said, and then we want you to be the first American in 45 years to go into a government building with government permission and have a church service. So I did. And so we brought Christmas to Cuba. And I can tell you a lot of details about it, but I only have two enemies, the clock and the calendar. And they're always, they're <laughs> always, always marching. And that one's marching back there. Longest I've ever preached in one service, 10 and a half hours. So, so uh, I, I hate the clock and I hate the calendar. But anyway, I understand they're necessary evils. But, uh, but anyway, uh, the next year, then in the springtime, I was there. And uh, I was in Old Havana, and I happened to see this guy. He's over there doing a ribbon cutting ceremony on, on a building. And I walked over to him, and he said, Dr. Myers, he said, are you, are you gonna bring us a Christmas tree again this year? And, and I said, con su permiso, with your permission. He said, claro, okay, see, of course. And so I brought one in 05. We did the whole thing again, and, and put it on television, and told the Christmas story, and, and talked about Jesus. And, uh, and I, 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 now President Kennedy had put an embargo on the state. So I couldn't send a tree from here. So whenever he first told me, we we need this tree by December 10th, we want you to do it. I had to, I got on the internet and started searching Christmas tree farms in Canada and called a guy and said, I know air air Canada flies to Havana. And I know, I know Cubana air flies to Montreal. Can can you fly a Christmas tree to Canada for me? He said, well, if I had government permission, I could, I I can get you the paperwork and that's not a problem, but I'm on the clock here. I need to know if you can do it. He said, I can do it. So I ordered decorations. I ordered red bows to talk about the blood of Jesus. I ordered about a star for the obvious reasons. And when it arrived in in Havana, Pastor, they the military met it. At San Jose, at, 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 at Jose Marti International Airport, the, the military met it. They gave it two, two motorcycle cops in front, two motorcycle cops behind it, and gave it a military police escort into town, set it up, decorated it, and and I was able to, do all that. Go in the church, go in the go in the building, beautiful old museum and have a church service. Next year, same thing. And now I have partners come to me all the time and say, But you still taking Christmas trees to Cuba and I say, No, I did it two two times and it and it changed history. Now if you go to Cuba at Christmas time you'll see Christmas trees and hear Christmas carols and, and have Christmas lights and, and all this kind of stuff. But see see we operate in a spiritual authority and a dominion that, that I don't think the church has scratched the surface of. And, uh, and, and we, we, we all, the Bible says, the Bible tells us that if the, if, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? Yeah. Psalms chapter 11. If the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? One translation says, what well, happens to the good people? And so this new woke culture, that's what they're doing. They're destroying every foundation they possibly can. Pulling down statues, rewriting history, uh, so, so our kids won't know what really happened, right? And it says, the word says, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? Now see, all through the Old Testament, God would tell the, the patriarchs, He say, put a post here, put a stake here, put stones here. And, and, and in the days to come, when the children yet unborn yes. come to you and say, Mama, Dad, Grandpa, Grandma, what meaneth these stones? What meaneth this post? What meaneth this state? Then you'll recount to them the great facts of what God has done for Israel. This is where we got water out of the rock. This is where we walked over the Red Sea, dry, on dry, dry ground. This is where we got manna. This, th- these are great things that God did. And that way they'll never, ever, ever, ever be forgotten. So, so in the America we're living in today, I think all of us are seeing the posts being moved and moved and moved, even in the churches. They're coming to the pastor and saying, now, pastor, you'd reach more young people if we'd just just do this. We'd reach more of this kind of people if we'd just do this. We'd reach more, and the post just keeps getting moved and moved and moved. And so our job is to reset the post. And that's what I did in Cuba. They had moved that post for 45 years. And God used me to go over there and put the post back where it belongs. And I can tell you so many more testimonies, but my time's gone.